0: Welcome to episode nine of the progression health podcast. I'm here with Andrew Coates, and he is going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself.
1: Hey Ross, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Um, If anybody's found this on my feed, you'll hear Ross's Irish accent. uh, My mother was born in Ireland, so I, I'm an Irish citizen, never been there, but I'm Canadian. I'm from um, originally from the east coast of Canada, St. John's, Newfoundland, but I live in Edmonton, Alberta, which is a probably the largest, sorry, the, the northernmost largest, large city in North America. That's super fun. Sorry, starting to get cold here. I've been a personal trainer for 11 years, six with a commercial gym, five with my own company. And along that path, I guess I started a podcast four years ago. Uh, and that's been fun. So I love and appreciate podcasting. I've been a fitness writer for quite a while. I've written for Teen Nation for about three years. And that's led to Writing for the PTDC and Generation Iron, and there's some stuff in the works that I never share until it's officially published. And uh, and I also mentor coaches as well, but I don't go into that business coach space because there's a lot of there's a there's a handful of good and there's a lot of bad. And um, yeah, and I also happen to like playing around on Instagram, so that's been sort of a a content playground for the last couple of years, which has been really fun and rather rewarding. So when we think of all the Social media stuff and how bad it can be. I think if you use it intentionally, it can uh, it can do a lot of good for your career.
0: Yeah, that, that word intention is very important. It's something I'm trying to do myself more. But it's like the apps are so good at distracting you that uh, you know if you drop the ball at all, they kind of suck you in. Um, but yeah, um, so just in terms of your own like fitness philosophy, I know you, you write a lot of articles. How I found you is your philosophy seemed to be pretty prominent on your posts. You know. You, very very engaging and very like practical. And, you know, you were able to uh, help me a little bit as well, kind of mentoring. Um, so yeah, what is your kind of like, you know, approach to, to health? And then like, what do you kind of try and pass on to your clients?
1: Anybody that comes to train with me, I try to come, whether their goal is weight loss, whether they want to put on a lot of muscle, um, whatever age they are, is to make it a fun, enjoyable, sustainable experience. And that sort of sounds cliche, but I think it does underpin everything we should be doing. Yes, if you're working primarily with athletes, who are going to listen to everything you're saying, then there's a more immediate, you know, hey, you have to optimize training for performance. But let's say you get young athletes, you're also a role model into giving them the skills and tools to be able to do it for a lifetime. If you're dealing with very high level athletes, there's probably going to be a point where they transition away from high level competition into everyday life. So These aspects permeate everything. You get someone who's a big weight loss client. We've all worked with them and we know they're statistically very prone to relapsing. So, you know, if they get discouraged at the, in the face of a plateau, the relationship that you form with them and the experience that they keep returning to, if they enjoy it and they feel strong and they enjoy pursuing strength, they're far more likely to get through that plateau, continue to see weight loss progress or If they reach the kind of goal that they've ultimately set out for themselves, they don't just go, okay, I've done it. Now I'm going to go back to the couch and I'm going to go back to eating the way I used to. That's a battle. Instead, they found a new lifestyle that they love and it becomes a core part of their identity. So I I always try to help wherever someone's starting, help them foster an identity built around a fit active lifestyle. I talk aggressively about lifting weights, and I think that resistance training is still the best option of a broad array of you know ways that we can consume fitness. It's not the only way. You have to help people find something that ultimately is going to keep them consistent. So that's the underpinning of everything.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, I really like that. Um, it, it kind of feels as like though you're saying that you're trying to get people to make fitness their own and uh, stick with it for the long term. And one of your posts, uh, I think your client's name is Larry. Is that right? Larry. Hey. Larry. So he's an older client for you. Tell us a little bit about him. He's like. It's, the posts seem inspirational and it seems like a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I love to see them. So I guess, would you talk about how your philosophy has worked for him and then training older clients? Well,
1: a lot of what I just said is true. So I, I don't know if a lot of your audience or other coaches. So you probably heard the hero's journey philosophy, Joseph Campbell stuff, you know, you're supposed to be Gandalf. You're not, you know, Frodo, right? You do want to make Write a really compelling story or sh- showcase a compelling story around someone. Larry is seventy-one. You know he started this stuff in his late sixties. His, his wife had passed about five years ago. You know he went through a rough patch after that, and he originally started trading with a friend of mine that he he'd known, uh, you know, family connection, and that friend had moved on from the industry. Larry had taken a break, and when he was ready to come back, that friend asked if I would take him. Home. So Larry and I sat down and met, and we liked each other right away, and it's been. You know, two times a week since then. And with Larry, I know that he would have probably struggled to transition to a new gym and a new relationship if he didn't like spending time with me. So on my social media, you see Larry deadlifting four trap bar 400 pounds, or you know, farmers carries with 120, 130 pounds across our turf at evolve, or you know, he's actually got a really good squat. But what doesn't get seen is is the conversation and stuff in between that's a relationship and Larry and I get along very well we've sat down and had a scotch together uh, at one point and you know he's got stories he's got wisdom he's got life experience which I always like plugging into and we we debate and talk about you know things that we're interested in and that forges the the relationship that he values that helps keep him coming back. Also expressing strength and feeling strong in the gym is something he keeps coming back to. If I was just militant about here, do this, do this, do this, and erected these very firm, hard boundaries about, you know, getting to know someone and, and each trainer is very different in terms of like kind of that boundary in the relationship they form with the clients. But I don't know that Larry might've stuck with it. And I certainly think we have a responsibility that people are seeking our help to help, get those habits and the lifestyle entrenched for the long term because we know we're competing against the messaging and marketing of quick fixes and a lot of people want easy results without a lot of effort and they want to do it for a little while and then they want to go right back to the couch and they want to go right back to the chips and ice cream and think well if i could only lose the weight then i could live the way i want to live we all know what the truth of that so instead Larry, like all my other clients, I just approach from a, how can I make this the most positive and welcoming experience that they want to return to every day? And part of that's our relationship. And part of that's getting them to do things in a gym setting that is pretty optimal for them, that they enjoy the most, they feel strong at, and they want to return to and do more.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. That actually reminds me of uh, something I heard about therapy recently. And like the best predictor of success for someone in therapy is the, the relationship they have with the therapist. And I like to think that that applies to any one-to-one situation. It's all about relationships, really. So I would firmly believe that a big part of his success with his training, you know, deadlifting 180 kilos at 71 years old is crazy. So it's like you mm-hmm. definitely, he has a lot of trust in you to be able to do that. Um, You're right. Trust is a major factor.
1: Your clients do have to feel a very strong sense of trust to sometimes reveal aspects of what's really going on what's really motivating what sometimes is interfering and in the way of them changing some of the behaviors there are people a lot of people we work with would love to have a result but they're actually afraid of letting go of something that is standing in the way of them getting results and whether it's the way that we create the messaging around lifestyle change if someone thinks that they have to starve and restrict themselves and they enjoy food and that's what they see in media then they're going to be very reluctant to make even small changes for fear of having to give it up forever and that's why good messaging around nutrition and you know letting people know hey you know be very careful about dichotomous you know good food bad food language and let people realize that yes you can sustain the things that really matter I just like to get people look at like, what's all the like the extra shit that you kind of look and go, Oh, I don't feel great after eating that. It wasn't that good. And they're just eating out of boredom. I mean, that's a more specific topic, but if you can get people to realize, wait a minute, I get to keep like, some of the stuff I really treasure within reason. And then if I make all these other sort of changes that are fairly painless, I can achieve long-term results, but it's breaking down their misconceptions coming into the process.
0: Oh, misconceptions. We could do a whole podcast on that. Um, yeah. Something that you're making me think of myself, my own coaching is um, that one of the biggest parts that I enjoy is just having a good conversation with the client outside of the actual sets they're doing and outside of the actual the personal training. Is that something you enjoy, or what do you think you enjoy most about working with clients?
1: I think there's several aspects to it. You know, from the trainer's point of view, you know, how many trainers relate to, you know, working, getting up fairly early in the morning and working till late in the evening. Maybe it's split shift work or crazy hours. Eat. You hear some people in the industry talk about really punching crazy hours. If anyone's familiar with a guy named Mark Megna, Mark's the owner of Anatomy in Miami. Phenomenal guy. He did a presentation recently at an event I was at. Mark's a former NFL guy, played in the CFL here in Canada, and then got into fitness. And there's plenty of other examples of these trainers who like punch these kind of hours. I've worked crazy hours across my career. You can't sustain that kind of on-the-floor effort. If you're not enjoying it. So, if you can find common ground with a client of stuff you enjoy talking about, because there comes a point where there's not much more to say on an ongoing basis about sets and reps and technique points. And you have those clients who are there because they enjoy the experience, they value the accountability. It's something that they want in their life. But outside of like little pockets, they don't necessarily need a lot of like aggressive technical work on their stuff. And there's only so much bandwidth we have for getting into habit-based nutrition and lifestyle behavior stuff too. There's going to be room for what they're interested in. Now, I'm not a big NFL football guy, but a lot of coaches are. If your clients are fans of football or whatever other sport, um, I used to play World of Warcraft. I won't dare go near it now because of the time and the, the level of addiction, but it's a nostalgic part of my life that goes back a lot, um, you know, to 12 to 15 years ago. But I have a few clients who are playing the new revamped um, classic uh, World of Warcraft for anybody who's familiar with it. If you're not into video games, you might not get it. I'm also a big Witcher fan. Witcher 3 is great. And I can geek out over World of Warcraft and listen to my clients who are in progressive raiding right now. If you know the language, you'll understand. And it's really cool to have them tell me about stuff that I remember from over a decade ago and revisit it in a shared experience. And that is really, really fun. Or if it's some other thing that you find really interesting and you're passionate about. And sometimes it's diving into the things that the careers, the life, where your clients are from. I've, cl- I've trained clients who live in Canada here in Edmonton, but are from all over the world. They've come from Sri Lanka, tons from India, uh, from the, certainly in the US, South America, Africa you name it like they come from all over the globe you know, European clients and hearing about where they grew up and the aspects of the culture there i find that stuff incredibly fascinating so there's so much you can enjoy from the experience which will help you sustain the energy and the interest and the passion for what you're doing now that's also a two way thing your clients are having a really great experience and they want to keep coming to you it helps like i said earlier with their sustainability, their consistency, maybe they don't love exercise. A lot of people are starting out. They don't love it. They're scared of it, but it might, your relationship with them might be enough to keep them coming back to the point where they actually feel safer with it, or they trust it more, or they eventually develop. Maybe they never love it, but they realize, okay, this is an important part of my life that I need to sustain so I can, you know, feel healthy and strong.
0: Yeah. They keep uh, coming back enough to where they, they figure out a way that they can make fitness their own, essentially. Um, yeah, you keep on trying different things with them, adapting their program, and they find something that they really enjoy. Um, just going back then to the the misconceptions. Um, what are some of the kind of the most common ones you see with clients, and some of the ones that plague, like I'd say, health and fitness the most? Hmm.
1: <sighs> I'm not even sure where to, where to begin on that one. You know, I think we're always kind of myth busting with the work that we do. <sighs> the nutrition ones are very common. People think that carbs are, are the bad thing or, you know, once when, when you get people who think carbs are are the devil, they're, they're the bad stuff, you know, calories don't matter. I think it's more important not to quote, educate or make the client feel like they're wrong. It's more about praising the effort that they've put into kind of learning about these things. And developing it goes back to the trust and the relationship you build with them and then at certain points you can turn around and go okay so this is a common and popular misconception this is actually kind of how the science of this works so there's just so many aspects of nutrition and and not much is like popping to mind i think another one certainly is they need to do cardio for fat loss and and, then getting them to go okay well nutrition is really going to be the best driver of you know if you want to lose body fat now if you enjoy cardio or you want to do various conditioning work, cool, that's great for you because it's good for your cardiovascular health. It's good for your mental health. It's good for a lot of things, and it can further the calories out equation. But we don't want to start with cardio as a fat loss tool without getting the nutrition layered in first. And we don't want to bias towards cardio for fat loss when resistance training is actually a much better use of our time in a one-to-one dichotomous decision. You only have time for one thing, All of the benefits, the, you know, building muscle, building metabolic rate, the recovery, the strengthening of bones, all of the physical and mental benefits of resistance training. You know, if I had to choose one-on-one, I take that every time over straight cardio. But, you know, you add into each person's program, the things that they enjoy, they will do. And as much as they have the time and the ability to do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. You kind of make their training as efficient as possible. Um, You spoke about like, you know, playing video games, you had a drink with, with a client. Um, Can you do all, do you think, you know, let's say someone's listening and they're like, I don't want to give up those things. Um, How can someone kind of keep up those habits and things they enjoy in their life, but then also, you know, make progress, say for example, working with you in in, uh, two sessions a week, like Larry.
1: It does, in a way, tap into how important it is to them and how badly they want it, and if they're willing to schedule it. So it has to start there. And then it's just like I, I said a lot of, it's having them really enjoy the process to where their work has become a non-negotiable. And that's something that goes into the schedule. It's, it's not unlike you know our personal finances and saving. You can try to save by saving whatever's left over after you spend. That's not efficient. Or you can make sure that saving is a locked in priority, and then you can spend whatever's left over after you save. And you just flip that philosophy. Well, it's the same thing with the way we spend our time. If you prioritize and put into the schedule, the essentials for your long-term well-being, and then you can spend what's left over on the other recreations you enjoy. And it's, it's getting, building that trust to where someone understands and sees that, yes, There's room for all of it and not necessarily everything under the sun. There's only so much time in life, but there is room for exercise and there is room for, you know, recreational activity. Now it's, it's important to add a caveat here, because if you talk about these things on social media, there's a certain cultural mindset that really pushes back. It's really nasty. Um, you know, I, I don't get caught up in like social ideological stuff. You know, I, I don't like the extreme stuff on either end. But when you start seeing people go like pushing back and getting nasty with you because that message doesn't apply to everybody because we have people in society who are working two or three jobs to stay afloat or you know new parents who are having trouble getting sleep. Yes, we get that. We understand that. But that doesn't invalidate the message for the overwhelming majority of people who are still trying to help. This fitness professionals are still trying to come from a constructive place. I think it's worth being thoughtful with the message. but if you do bump into the type of people who are more interested in policing what you're saying and how you're saying it when you're trying to be helpful i think those type of people are are more or less engaging in a type of self-righteousness where they're giving themselves a big pat on the back for policing what other people are saying when they're actually not contributing anything positive at all so if you're dealing with those kind of people quite frankly you know and they pop up rarely but every once in a while That's a pretty quick block because if their intentions are disingenuous and they're just being hostile, they're gone. So you don't have to allow these people into your space or to damage your emotional well-being or interfere with your mission. Um, If it's someone that's you know you have a relationship with, well, maybe that's a conversation that's best taken off the public space and let them listen. Like you know the overall message and mission here is to reach and empower as many people as possible, and just because they're going to be People in a very diverse array of our society that this may not apply to does not mean that it's not a good message for most people. Not every message can be quote inclusive of every single person's circumstance, and that is not a reason not to continue to deliver these messages and help everybody you can.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, you're kind of preaching to the choir here in San Francisco. We we have a lot I of that. I think
1: San Francisco is probably got a lot of that stuff going on. I what
0: I hear. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a joke at a comedy show was like somebody was complaining about a problem, but in San Francisco, someone else complains about the person complaining about the problem and tries to police them and uh, nothing actually ends up getting done in the end. So that's something that's pretty common. Um, So, you know, policing is something that we could see less of in the fitness industry. Is there anything else that you think uh, you would like to change in the fitness industry if you could to kind of improve maybe the, pop, the general population's health as a whole or how they learn about uh, health information or practice health? There's a lot of stuff in there. I think
1: coaches spend a little bit too much time lecturing each other on how they do things. And I'm going to try to be careful not to contradict myself. An example is when more established individuals in the industry make statements that Come off as being, you know, gatekeeping. So gatekeeper syndrome. If you ever see something like, personal trainers need to spend five years uh, working in person with clients before they, you know, sh- you know, should be going online to coach people. Okay, cool. That's nonsense. I've written an article on that whole thing, and especially the last eighteen months. You know, like I think a lot of coaches now are going to be learning online as a sort of a hybrid concurrent with their in-person stuff, even at the beginning. And the argument is, well, you don't know enough to be a coach online. Well, shit, as you're starting out as a person trainer, you probably don't know enough to be an in-person trainer too. You have to get started somewhere. Yes, I think that being a great in-person coach and having a lot of experience there is going to be a major asset to online. But if someone's more interested in kind of gatekeeping these things, well, uh, I don't think their message is really serving you. Another popular one is when people whine, and it's whining about influencers in the online space and how we should have greater regulation in the industry. I've talked about this a little bit and this gets polarizing, but when I hear people calling for greater regulation, I'm like, all right, so what, what's that going to do? Is that going to, that's not going to make the Instagram influencers who aren't certified, they're, they're not going to go away. Instagram's not going to like go, oh, you guys don't have the certification. You can't talk about fitness. They're still going to exist. And I think it's a, a wine that comes from a place of entitlement and envy where trainers feel like they're entitled. Well, I should have those clients because I'm more qualified. You know, I went to school for this and this person is showing their abs on Instagram. Well, okay. What can you learn from the person showing their abs on Instagram yet do it with integrity and do it with more quality? And it kind of to me says, well, you're struggling to fill your own, you know, schedule with clientele to help. Your energy would be best served, not complaining about the way things are, but to focus on as much of your own education, your marketing skills, sales skills, brand building, and attract more people. Because I don't think people who are really busy serving their clients are spending a lot of time complaining about what the influencers are doing on social media because they're never going away. And it's it's a broader philosophy. It's getting people to focus on what they can control. And putting effort into that versus complaining about what's beyond their control. Right. It's it's the old, I can't remember the exact thing, but it's you know, expecting the world to change for you versus changing you so you, you can make a greater impact on the world. And, and I think this is an important part of our careers as coaches. I think it's an important part of our own individual fitness journeys. A lot of people who fall into fitness, myself included, we underwent a personal, you know, kind of lifestyle transformation that became a passion and you know, an embedded part of our our identity that turned into a career. And that means taking ownership. That means, you know, individual responsibility. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. And it kind of goes back to the, the people who are policing what they say. I think sometimes that message, they would rather, you know, tell people, oh, no, they're there. It's not your fault. The world is a bad place. You don't have to worry about this. Let's make the people who are talking about this go away. And that's, that's not reality. But I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole either because you know I, I try to steer clear of this stuff. Um, what would I change? I, I don't know if there's a lot to change because we're competing against human nature, the human desire to, you know, sit in front of Netflix and eat hypo, you know, hyper palatable food that you know is readily abundant in, in supermarkets and in, uh, in in fast food places and that's a metaphor for what's going on it's not literally everybody's experience so we have to create a more compelling message a fun brand and a relationship with people to get them to experience how great it feels to like kind of be more like what our lives are lives are like with fitness realize, hey, you have more energy, You, your mood is better, your mental health is better, you feel stronger, you look younger, you feel better about going into getting a little older. And if people start buying into that whole thing, and that's your responsibility as a, as a coach to present that both to the client in front of you and to anybody who's you know diving into your media, and we're not going to change the world, but we can certainly help one person at a time if that person has a great experience and they start telling their family and friends and maybe you start working with those people or maybe a few new people follow you because they like what you posted or or something you've written somewhere or your youtube channel or your podcast and that person starts plugging a little bit more into your message and it starts sitting top of mind and maybe they're not ready to change today but maybe three to six months from now they're like i really got to go talk to this person and see if they're looking for see if they're taking on clients or maybe it just inspires them to go to the gym on their own. Either way, those little, little imprints add up across our society.
0: Yeah, we're definitely fighting uh, a battle against human nature. And I think it's almost like a little war of attrition where you can get through to someone over time by just staying the course with, you know, your own philosophy. Um, So there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, you know, I, I, you'd like to think that our message is like, uh, a message that people can can follow for the long term that will you know serve their best interests as opposed to um, you know things that are on social media that you know it's just purely will say for profit. Um, what are the kind of the tips you had in that post about uh, misinformation and just you know a guide to to avoiding uh, fallen prey to to misinformation?
1: You know, is, are we talking from the coach's perspective or are we talking from the the consumer's perspective?
0: Consumer, consumer.
1: I don't know how I really want to answer this. There's a lot of dimensions to come at this. I think anybody who's listening is already probably converted to our way of thinking anyway. So, for that person, because I don't think anyone else is listening, I think it's finding people in our space that resonate with you. And so there are going to be a lot of fitness professionals with a lot of different personal brands and personalities and and aspects to what they teach. The people that don't resonate with you or you find off putting, well, you know, don't use those as examples of the rest of the industry. And and don't don't think in terms of or subscribe to this idea that the, the industry itself is this toxic, horrible place. It will be if you believe that and you go looking for it and all the examples of that. Instead, go looking for the people who are have integrity or sharing great information things that motivate you um, align with you and the things that when you see on a casual basis as you consume it on social media maybe it just gives you a little bit of that pump on a bad day when you were feeling a bit sluggish that's what I would plug into for that type of person and I don't know I, I don't know if I can really do this question justice but I'm happy to, to talk about it more if you have more insight into how to frame it
0: yeah um so i think there's like a lot of poorly formed sources of information out there or you know documentaries for example um or people maybe trying to like just make money and not actually thinking of what value they can offer to a potential client or consumer out there um so then basically the information that someone's putting out is actually like disingenuous or Mm. um Something they haven't really got experience with. How, how would someone, I guess, spot, you know, we'll say a good documentary from a bad one or like a charlatan from, you know, someone with integrity?
1: I really do believe it becomes finding resources you trust. And, and you have to want to first. So I don't know if I have a really easy way to say how do you get someone who's completely bought into Gwyneth Paltrow's website or, you know, Dr. Oz's stuff to get them over to, you know, digging into John Berardi and Dr. Mike Gisertal, right? Dr. John Berardi. But if you're already a little bit over that way, again, find people who are evidence-based community and, you know, authorities, it doesn't need to be someone who's a PhD. It can be a Jordan Syed or, uh, you know, a Susan Niebergall who are really amazing with their their brand and the information they share that's really evidence-based. But find someone that you trust who's credible. And then make sure that you're at least plugging into the things you're doing dive into their articles and it becomes a choice to educate yourself and it becomes a choice to fight against any inclination toward biases or you know beliefs that you want to validate by seeking confirming information and what we're talking about here is not easy stuff for the average everyday general population person i think if anything I'll, Yes, the onus is always on the the everyday person to learn from their experiences and find better information. And sometimes that will come with reading the wrong books and following the wrong people before you've had enough of an experience where you decide, okay, cool, I, I have to try something different. But it's on people in our world, fitness professionals, to instead of complaining about quote influencers, go out and beat the influencers at their own game. And maybe it's building a follow, maybe it's creating some sort of long form content vehicle, like article writing or podcast or or YouTube that reaches more eyes and ears to where it is appealing to someone who's a bit more general population. And then they go, well, this looks cool. I'm going to go check this out. And it draws in people. And I don't want to say, but it almost rescues them from mainstream bullshit. So I still think a big responsibility is on the, the personal trainer, on the coach, on the, the fitness professional, and it doesn't start with complaining about the people who are doing it wrong. It starts with you doing everything you can to do it better.
0: Yeah. Kind of like the quote, it's like, be the change you want to see in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So one of your other posts then was about, uh, leading your clients to success. And, you know, we talked about trust already. So how do you build trust with clients? You know, let's say someone who hasn't found, uh, exercise to be enjoyable? Um, and how do you typically lead someone to success? I guess you've touched on it already, but just in a little bit more detail.
1: We've touched on it already, but you know, you you ask a lot of questions. You know, you find out how they feel about the experience. You, as a default setting, you ease people in versus crush them and leave them so sorry they never want to return. You try to find the things. There are certain exercises that I find universally just clients will enjoy a bit more. Uh, you no. Know, being able to do a trap bar deadlift, it's not for everybody, but some people like the expression of strength. I find that, you know, farmers carries actually tend to work really well. Not only are they one of the best things you can do with anybody, but most people are pretty good at them and they don't make people crazy sore. They're usually pretty good about pushing a sled around. They kind of find that fun, even if it's tough. Bench pressing is usually kind of fun. And there are other things along the way, you know, like not everybody's like love squats. Some do, but they're usually okay with sitting in a leg press. And if someone, you know, turns around and says to you, oh, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have people doing a leg press. It's a machine, you know, they should be squatting. I mean, like, okay, but then there's the context of the individual person in front of you. And if that person really fucking hates doing squats, but will sit in a leg press and you're making sure their technique is good, that is a gateway to eventually getting them to do a good squat. Cool. Okay. Or maybe you give them very small doses of things like, you know, lunges or a split squat variation, that's important because you want them to do single leg work, but they're much more content to do a squat. Okay, well, I'll bias more towards squat with sprinkling in the single leg stuff to make sure it's covered until I know that they're enjoying it and the habit's so entrenched that there's less resistance to doing the things that they don't necessarily love. It's certainly not forcing clients to do shit that they hate. There's a lot of different ways we can achieve the goals that we that our clients have set without making them do like, burpees are such a contentious argument in the industry. And most people in the industry kind of just default to, oh, they're garbage. And then there's always a few people are like, well, no, no, no it's like they're they're practical under this blah, 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 whatever. I mean, I think there's a nuance in between. I haven't programmed a burpee, I think, with a client in forever because I actually think they're a fairly, usually they're used in a lazy fashion, right? They're used where maybe other things would probably be better, but the client just, the trader just decides, all right, well, I want to Get your heart rate up and make you tired, and I'm going to give you a burpee at the end for cardio, and that's not a good use of a burpee. But what if someone is training for police services or has a physical that there is literally a burpee component in their physical or in the training that they're being put through in whatever course they're they're approaching their physical for? So I need them to be skilled at a burpee, or I need them to be skilled at a certain type of exercise that they otherwise I wouldn't give to a client well okay I better teach them how to do it safely and effectively so they don't get hurt when they're in a group of a hundred recruits with a you know two police officers directing a group and making them run around and tire them out for an hour to see how mentally tough they are when there's they don't have the skill or the attention to be able to make sure that the each person's walking lunges are technically safe and the person's not risking injury so I don't know I, I think I, like I said earlier, trainers like to get into these arguments and fight over, over things, uh, pay attention to who's arguing on Facebook about trivialities. That's not good use of your time, but that's a side note.
0: Yeah. That's funny. You should say about the burpees, like, um, nearly always when I have a, a consultation with a client, I'm like, you know, what should we avoid? What do you not want to do? It's nearly always burpees, burpees are like nearly top of the list. Um, and then enjoyment, of course, is like a really big part of training. Um, and one of your recent posts, you said, you know, what you've done as you've aged, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. So how do you still enjoy training into your 40s? Um, you know, having trained for a long time. What's like some kind of things you do to still enjoy it?
1: It's it's a default setting. It's for a very long time. It's become the thing that I look forward to at the end of the day. So I just literally think, OK, cool, I've got clients from here to here, my, my days done at eight or nine in the evening, and then I'm going to go work out, right? I've pre made the decision. But it's, it's a default setting. It's part of who I am and what I what I love doing, I have to talk myself out of working out. Within that, I still make sure that the style of training is something I enjoy. And I grew up probably heavily influenced by a bodybuilding training style and ideology. So a lot of my workout structure is, is still in that realm. But I, I've modified and adjusted and tinkered with things over the years to accommodate you know, a a left shoulder injury, discomfort that doesn't let me do everything I used to be able to do. And make sure that it's something that I don't dread. Because if I start doing things that I don't look forward to, I could compromise the the consistent habit and relationship that I've got with it. Yeah, it's, it's something that I really enjoy. And I make sure that it's, you know, a sacred part of my day. I've got some, you know, some music to listen to that I really enjoy you know, like my recent post is like, if I'm ever stuck in a situation where I have to listen to the gym music, and will Smith's getting jiggy with it comes on, I want to out my ears. I try not to subject myself to that. Instead, I'll go listen to something I think is a bit more appropriate for the gym.
0: Yeah, you try and plan in advance to make it as enjoyable as possible, which is like, something I'm really preaching to clients a lot, you can really make your workout routine a lot harder than it needs to be. If you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Um, but in terms of the injury, so you spoke of, of your shoulder injury, how do you, uh, you have a post, you know, pain or discomfort, during exercise. How do you kind of work around that? And like, you know, stay motivated to train if you have like a niggling injury or an ache, because, you know, something I try to think of is like, we can always do something and, you know, we have to take responsibility for our health. So it's like, it's very easy to use an injury as an excuse not to train but um, I guess how do you still train while I guess not feeling a hundred percent or having some sort of injury?
1: Well, you you identify the things that are, you know, like you can think in terms of like red light, yellow light, and green light. Um, You identify the red light stuff, the stuff that will hurt it, causes pain, you physically just can't get in the range of motion doing, and you take that stuff out. And then you engineer ways to train the same muscle groups, or essentially get a similar effect with a different motion. So A good example of something that doesn't work for me anymore is a shoulder, a dumbbell shoulder press with my elbows flared out in a wider position. My left shoulder doesn't tolerate that. It doesn't tolerate pull-ups anymore. Again, it's like, it's a pulling motion in that wide position, but underhanded chin-ups, neutral grip chin-ups are fine landmine pressing. Or if my elbows are tucked to the midline of my body and I've got a barbell in hands and I'm seated, then those things are all great for my shoulders. So as long as I'm not doing a whole bunch of stuff to piss it off and make it worse, then I most everything else works fine. Uh, barbell bench pressing doesn't feel good on anymore, but I'm actually okay with a football bar. So if I get a neutral grip bar position or you know, neutral grip dumbbells, cool. I can, I can do bench pressing movements. So I just go to the stuff that feels okay. And if there's stuff that's kind of a yellow light-ish where if I'm not careful with it, or like if loading it up really, really heavy tends to start aggravating it, then okay, cool. Well, there's certain things that I will stay out of certain load and rep ranges that seem to aggravate it. So therefore, maybe my rep range has to stay a little higher and I have to use a little bit less weight. And then I can, anything that's like straight up green light, it's go hard, right? Push really hard through it, load it up heavy, train, and ultimately keep the consistency of the overall experience going. And then layer in on top of that, one of the best things every trainer coach should do is develop a relationship with really skilled physical therapists physical therapists are like trainers. There are a lot of really bad unqualified ones out there. There are a lot of physical therapists who know nothing about strength and conditioning. They know nothing about lifting. Those are probably not going to be the best people to send your clients who are training to, because they're not going to have a strong foundation in that realm. So the guys that I work with, they work with, um, they themselves are lifters. One of them is a, you know, very, very uh, serious lifter. And the other one is a PhD who's worked with Tons of athletes and, and strength athletes. So he can definitely handle, you know, stuff like a, a bodybuilder's, you know, shoulder discomfort, or, you know, a lot of the aches and pains and concerns and problems and injuries that the, my clientele come up against sometimes. So if you have those kind of professionals to refer your clients to, let alone yourself working to, well, that's a great way to keep your clients on track and show value. It's not, oh, I'm referring something out now, all of a sudden I'm losing the client. No, you're actually helping the client Deal with this long term injury that they've always kind of had and allow you to keep progressing them while having someone in your corner that helps give you a little bit of guidance to say, okay, listen, like do this and get this strong, but try to avoid this kind of stuff for this person for the next little while. And it helps you do your job better and it enhances the client experience. And there's obviously the professional relationship where if you refer business one way, you know, I don't do, I don't refer business out to anyone with the expectation of anything in return. I don't think you should do anything. With the expectation of a specific return go go through your career with an abundance mindset a lot of good stuff will come back to you but people will also probably start referring stuff back to you
0: yeah yeah like reciprocity really um so you're kind of talking about the red light green light uh, amber light with in terms of uh, like what you can do and ranges of motion um i think people kind of debate like using full range of motion half range of motion do you have any like opinion on that um, And like, you know, when it's best to use full and when it's, you know, more appropriate to use half, half ranges.
1: Probably get a little blunt on this one and I'll try to add some nuance because usually I don't think in terms of black and white, but most of the time when people are using partial range of motion, it's just an excuse to ego lift, right? And I'll call that bullshit on its face. Everybody individually has different range of motion that they have access to based on their injury history is a big one uh, or their uh anthropometry your limb length you know you get a, a a very tall squatter with very long femurs they're probably going to struggle to squat sometimes even to parallel certainly deep below parallel it also depends on your hip socket shape and and your mobility of your hips i think one of the best things you can and should do is learn to move really really well you can do targeted mobility stuff to enhance your ability to enter ranges of motion for better training effect but work within the, you know, a, a range of motion that you can safely enter. So let's use the example of a squat. Make sure you're effectively loading in through your heels on, you know, on normal loaded squat. Yes, I get 60 squats. That's a little different. Maintain a neutral spine. And if you can squat, you know, virtually ass to grass and maintain a neutral spine, well, you, and there's certainly no discomfort in your knees and no history of, of injury with your knees, then that's a safe thing for you to do. And you probably should maximize it. If you're struggling to, Get much below parallel before you know your your spine collapses. Your your butt wigs aggressively. A little butt wig is not going to hurt anybody. Okay, cool. Well, if you have someone lay down on the ground and you test their passive range of motion of their hips and you find out that they can absolutely do you know active uh, to grass, but when you put them with a barbell on their shoulders, well, it's just the the stability of how many like how much surface area touch point is like on the ground, and so that becomes all right. Well, maybe someone in the back squat they collapse, but all of a sudden I put a dumbbell in their hands, a goblet squat, uh, they actually get much deeper. So it's center gravity of the load. So you got to find the right exercise for that person to be able to use the proper range of motion. But yeah, and I'm fine with someone who squats to, you know, just slightly below parallel. If they go a little bit deeper, their form starts to break down a bit. You can try to coach that a bit, but it's, it's when I see someone who's squatting, you know, two inches above parallel, they got way too much weight on the bar. You know, their knees are are wavering around and it looks like like someone just call the ambulance and have it on standby because something really horrible is going to happen here. When I see stuff like that, it's kind of like, all right, like what do you what are you doing? Like, are you trying to actually get strong and build muscle for the long run? Or are you trying to fake the appearance of strength? It's the same thing as someone who's doing um, you know, bench press that has like three inches of range of motion that doesn't lock out but doesn't touch their chest, and they're pumping them out. Okay super you're really training that range of motion but you're you're missing a lot of other training effect and you're getting suboptimal results and i know you're using more weight than you can control it's an excuse to use more weight than most people can control is the problem so and it depends on if it's your client if it's some like kid in the gym or some old guy in the gym who's been doing it for years don't even waste your time like the your your intr- intrusion is going to be unwelcome you're not going to save them from it but if you got a client in front of you who's really married married to ego lifting well it goes back to the trust and then bringing it back down to something that is safest for them. And I've worked with a lot of clients who, you know, they trust you through the process and they've like, they've changed. And I've worked with a few who they always kind of emotionally want to default to lifting a certain way that they lift. So it does become a bit of a a work in progress to get that person to buy into making change that ultimately is going to be safer and better for the results.
0: Good. Yeah. So you're on team full range of motion and you're not on team ego lifting, which is, yeah, definitely and, not a way to go. And, and that's,
1: that's in of itself sort of, a, you know, it is a bit of a false dichotomy. I, I am team full range of motion. I am team trained through the fullest available range of motion you can safely train through, right? It's not full range of motion um, blindly on every exercise without understanding what the definition of full range of motion is for that individual exercise. If you're doing a dumbbell row and you're cocking your elbow, way above and behind your back and the head of your humerus is dumping forward in the socket. That's full range of motion, but that's actually completely missing the target muscle. It's creating, ai a, don't like using language like this, but a faulty movement pattern that is probably gonna increase the likelihood of pain or injury down the road with your rotator cuff or uh, the long head of your bicep tendon to get a little technical on people. So it's its knowing what is the the best range of motion, the correct, the safest, the most productive range of motion for any individual exercise. And sometimes there's argument about that too. And it just becomes trying to plug into the best resources and an and array of the smartest, most trustworthy res- people in the industry to learn these techniques from.
0: So it makes me think that's where the benefit of a coach like one of us comes in, where we can tell people it's a good time to go full range. And then it's another time where you want to uh, cut the range and, you know, individualize the range of motion to what you have capable to you.
1: And sometimes we have limited range. I have a client right now who has, you know, a fairly serious shoulder injury that she's recovering from. And she came to me to kind of be part of that rehabilitation process. And her ability to do basically loaded pushing exercises is virtually non-existent. I'm going to probably introduce some isometric holds and some very limited range of motion based on what she can do pain-free. And the goal is to help restore that range of motion and get her stronger through the entirety of it. She's also working with a very skilled physical therapist that I trust to guide that process. So again, it's appropriate to to the situation the
0: client. Yeah, I find those situations can be the most rewarding because initially they're the most challenging. You might be kind of working with the most limited ability for the client, but then when you work through that and you get them to like, you know, uh, a stronger position with you know they're pushing movements like what you're working on, it it can be like mind blowing for the client to see the progress they can make. Um, when they just stay consistent with their training. Um, so then just kind of going back to, you were talking about uh, abundance and I feel like that's kind of related to like people's mindset or their outlook. And you had a post on like people fail because they try to be perfect. So you could talk like a little bit about, I guess, you know, abundance and perfectionism and just the mindset of, I guess, maintain your health for the long term.
1: Well, perfectionism can be a very, the instinct for people to want to be perfect in everything can be discouraging because a lot of people never end up following through or finishing on things where they're never satisfied with the effort so perfectionism tends to set up another false dichotomy just pass fail and a very 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 difficult barrier for passing and if you facilitate that inadvertently with your clients or if they have that mindset and they fail frequently then they tend to get discouraged and they tend to you know, get off track and they tend to fall off workout programs and then break the lifestyle habit consistency. So that's where perfectionism is kind of the enemy of progress. So it just becomes, you know, having nuanced conversations with the client or even with yourself, if perfectionism is one of your obstacles with your career stuff, to get you off the ledge of that false dichotomy, that that very rigid pass-fail metric, and to be happy with very good. And to realize that this is more than good enough, and it's not just being satisfied with mediocre, but it's going okay. If I publish this article, okay, maybe if I spend another twenty hours on it, I can squeeze out a few more pieces of something. I feels a little bit better, but it's more than good enough to put up on my website. So I get to the next one, and I can you know meet the calendar that I want to publish this stuff on. So you know, it, it applies in every aspect of our, our industry. So it's just one of those things that we have to recognize. And then we kind of have to bring ourselves down off the ledge of it.
0: Yeah. Because like, I like to think that per- perfection or perfect doesn't really exist because it's just not really sustainable. You know, you're going to make mistakes and, uh, you're going to fall short, but very good is like, it is very good. You know? <laughs> and if you can, if you can keep that rate of, um, output up over the long term, that's much more, you know, sustainable. Um, And then just the abundance, that that kind of mindset you're talking about. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I try to, and yeah, sure. I got a a couple more minutes before I have a client walking in. I try to approach everything I do within the industry, certainly the the social media, online stuff with an abundance mindset. You're going to get a lot further if you just, without any expectation of any reciprocal behavior or return, you share other people's stuff. I'm not worried that if I share a whole bunch of other coaches on my Instagram or mention them in an article that my clientele or potential clients are going to go and, and all of a sudden turn around and, and train with Tony Jantelcore or Dean Somerset or, or go sign on with Mike Izertell's Renaissance Periodization. If anything, I can enrich my client's experience by exposing them to all these other people that may have resources that I can't, I can't create, you know, articles on every topic of nutrition and training that's possible. I'm, you know, full-time coaching, plus trying to do what I can. There's limits to what I can do. So at the same time, I think we need to see more of this abundance mindset. I'll use an example. And then there's a a guy who I found follow me It's about 70,000 followers. I'm like, oh, this guy's got a big account, whatever. Cool. I you know follow him back to check out more of his stuff. And then after a little while, he makes a comment on a post I shared about other people. I didn't include him in it. It was relevant to him. And he inserts himself in is like hey me and it's like and i'm responding like that's ah, kind of not how this works it's like you know you kind of got to go and do things and put yourself out there and, and kind of earn those responses so what do you find whatever um i've never seen him share anybody else's stuff and after a little while one of his things popped up and i look and he's no longer following me and i'm like okay fine well you know if someone's if someone has gone and played follow on follow games, and I follow them, then I usually just unfollow them because I'm like, unless I really am plugged into their stuff or I know them personally, then I'm just like, fuck this. So, a few months later, he pops back up and follows again, and reaches out to me and asks if I'd come on his podcast. Now, I've since looked and realized that for a guy with seventy thousand followers, he gets, you know, a hundred comments on his posts. He's bought his following; it's a fake following, right? So he's just trying to create the illusion of authority. Okay, fine. It tells me a little bit about him. Fine, and not the end of the world. People do it, but still something. And then I'm like, Hey, yeah, sure. I'd love to come on your podcast. He's like, Hey, and do you think I could come on to yours? And I'm like, Hey man, listen, I'm sorry. Like I don't do, you know, trade for trade or like, you know, and I get a bunch of people asking themselves like to come on. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't take guests by, based on request. And then, so I didn't hear any response from him. And so I go back a week later to use his example. And he's unfollowed me again. It's just like, this is someone who is the complete antithesis of abundance mindset. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with, helping or supporting this person based on their behavior. Whereas I probably would have relatively organically in time if he'd been you know, abundant in his own mindset, right? But he's, he's not. He's a scarcity. So just use that example in how to behave and not and how not to behave in the industry. And there will be people you'll share the hell of their stuff and they're, they're not going to be able to give much back to you, but then there's going to be people who are just like going out of their way to share everything that you're doing, who are raving fans of your work. And then there's no way you can possibly give back to them. So it more than evens out. And I believe if you're really approach the world with an abundance mindset, people collectively will give 10 times of what you can give. So I'm out of time. I apologize, my friend, but uh, Ross, I appreciate you having me on here.
0: Brilliant, Andrew. Thanks very much. Um, we'll catch up again in the, in the DMs. And uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And
1: uh, if anybody does want to ask me questions or whatever, please, I respond to everything. You can find my Instagram. Uh, at Andrew Coates Fitness. Um, I love questions, so I'm always responsive. Ross, thank you so much, my friend. Brilliant. Have a good day. You too, brother.